Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz commemorates the one-year anniversary of the 2020 bear market. We have three new stocks to our coverage. Ben Johnson shares two dividend ETF picks. And Margaret Giles shows us how to create a budget. Let's get started. Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. talk about key lessons from the beginning of the pandemic. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. One year ago, as the pandemic began to cause serious disruption here in the United States, stocks began an epic, albeit short-lived, slide. Joining me today to talk about some key lessons learned during that period is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So the first quarter of 2020 and the beginning of that second quarter of 2020 was a very unsettling period for investors, for for people in general. Stocks were sliding. Um, We were concerned about our health and we were concerned about the health of the economy. If you had to pick sort of one lesson from that time frame, what would you say it is? That panicking is rarely rewarded. We saw during that period that investors who were sellers would have missed out, at least on the early days of the recovery. The market recovered very, very swiftly. So this is something that we know. We know from lots of other incidents like this, although there wasn't ever one quite like this before, you know that you rarely want to be a panic seller. And think about where 2020 ended up. It's certainly not what I would have guessed if you had asked me in March 2020. So we had the S&P 500 gaining like 18%. The Bloomberg Barclays aggregate gained about 8%. So it was a great year for investors who sat tight. So I would say the key lesson is that it rarely makes sense to panic in such situations. On the other hand, I would also warn investors that recoveries are usually not that swift. So the typical length of a bear market is closer to two years, not just a a few months. So bear that in mind as well. When you think about and brace yourself for future periods like this, know that you don't want to be a seller in these periods, but also know that you may find your patience taxed a little bit longer than was the case during 2020. Now, you've talked before that another um, lesson or, or a mistake that maybe investors might have made during this period last year was that they were waiting for some signal from the economy to then go back into the market and invest. And and that was a mistake, right? Right. This is often an issue for investors. They look for the signal, you know, they want to wait until they see a clear green signal that it's okay to get back in there and invest and think back to early April 2020 when the market did begin to recover things were still feeling pretty dire. We were all still very worried about the pandemic. We were legitimately thinking about whether it could cause some sort of a depression in the US economy. The vaccine wasn't at all on the horizon at that point. And and many very smart people were saying that it could be years before we had a vaccine. So if you wait for the all clear signal to come through, you've oftentimes missed a big part of the recovery. And so I think the lesson for investors is that they need to understand that the market is often preemptive, the market's looking forward beyond current events. And so they wanna be careful not to tether how they position their portfolios too closely to whatever's 
going on in the macro economy, the, the market is usually a couple steps ahead. Let's talk a little bit specifically about equities and lessons that can be learned from equities during that period. One thing that I come back to is the fact that we had the value growth bifurcation uh, coming into 2020 where value stocks had dramatically underperformed growth. And so I think some investors might've thought, well, in some kind of correction, we'll see value stocks out outperform because they're cheaper after all, right? And that didn't happen. We saw the high, high growth companies, the technology companies that had paced, been pacing the market, they actually held up better than value, largely because value companies are oftentimes the more cyclical companies. So you've got energy and industrials, uh, basic material stocks there. They tend to be very responsive to what's going on in the economy. The market sell-off that we had earlier in 2020 had to do with concerns about the health of the economy. So the low valuation stocks are not a cinch to outperform during market corrections, during periods of market turbulence. At times they will be. So think back to the early 2000s, we very much did see a rotation out of some of the high growth technology companies. It didn't happen this time around. So value stocks aren't a, aren't a cinch to, to outperform and really all bear markets like the one we had in 2020 are a little bit different. Now, even though investors who stayed the course in 2020 were rewarded, as you alluded to, given the rebound in the market, you do also say that one lesson from last year was the value of having some liquid reserves on hand. How so? Right. It was very much a scramble for cash. And the key thing that I noticed during that period, Susan, was that investors were throwing almost everything overboard in search of cash that even high quality bonds went down for a period of time. And prior to that period, I would have said, well, usually in some sort of a uh, market inflection point like that, you'd see high, high quality bonds perform pretty well, <laughs> not during that period. Short-term bonds, even the safer stuff went down at least for a short period of time. So if you really needed money, for some expense during that period, you would not wanna be a seller of anything. You would have that cash locked down. So cash is cash. And I think investors ought to remember that. Uh, yields of course are very low today, so you don't wanna overdo cash. But I do think that it was an illustration during that period that there was no substitute for true cash holdings. And you mentioned bonds. Given what happened in 2020, how should investors, you know, what can we learn about how we should be thinking about our fixed income allocations, given those experiences? One thing we saw during that period was uh, a real underperformance with, with what I sometimes call faux diversification. So some of the higher yielding bond types, whether emerging markets bonds or U.S. junk bonds, corporate, lower quality corporates, really took a tumble during that period. And that's something that we've known for a while, that directionally, performance-wise, they tend to behave more like stocks than bonds. 
So to the extent that you hold them in your portfolio, think of them as maybe a lower risk equity substitute as opposed to a fixed income substitute. If you need fixed income in your portfolio, if you want to try to pick up a little bit higher yield than you can obtain with cash holdings today, you'd want to stick with high quality bonds, which generally did hold their ground, even though they weren't foolproof during that period, they did hold their, their ground better than the lower quality stuff. So you want to make sure if you have diversification that it's real diversification. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time and for your reflections on the 2020 bear market. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, our analysts tell us what they think of three new companies on our coverage list. Morningstar analysts recently brought a few new stocks under coverage. Snowflake is a data lake, warehousing, and sharing company that came public in 2020. To date, the company has over 3,000 customers, including nearly 30% of the Fortune 500. As enterprises continue to migrate workloads to the public cloud, significant obstacles have arisen, compromising performance of data queries, creating hefty data transformation costs, and yielding erroneous data. Snowflake seeks to address these issues with its platform, which gives all of its users access to their data lake, warehouse, and marketplace on various public clouds. We think Snowflake has a massive runway for future growth and should emerge as a data powerhouse. We project exceptional revenue growth in the years ahead and assign Snowflake a fair value estimate of $204 per share. We also assign Snowflake a no-moat rating, given the infancy of its business. But we think its moat trend is positive, as its multi-cloud platform exhibits switching costs and a network effect. Malibu Boats designs, manufactures, and sells performance sports boats. The boats are used for water sports, such as water skiing, wakeboarding, and wake surfing. We assign Malibu Boats a narrow moat rating and a fair value estimate of $87 per share. The company's robust market share and consistently robust returns on invested capital drive its economic moat rating. Malibu drives demand through cutting-edge water sports technology, for which it holds several patents, and perpetual innovation, releasing a plethora of new products every year. Additionally, Malibu has historically been acquisitive in its efforts to broaden its total addressable market, and we forecast acquisitions to continue at regular intervals. Malibu has a best-in-class balance sheet, giving the firm enviable financial flexibility. Lastly, Neogen develops, manufactures, and markets various products for food and animal safety. We assign shares a $47 fair value estimate and narrow moat and stable moat trend ratings. While Neogen operates in a highly competitive market environment, the firm has been able to carve out a narrow economic moat from differentiated intangible assets in food testing and animal genomics. Neogen's margins compare well to larger, diversified peers in the testing space. We think Neogen is focusing on the right things. With recent investments, tuck-in acquisitions, and strategic partnerships adding to the firm's moteworthy offerings in animal genomics. We think the development of a proprietary database of cattle genetic traits and recent expansion into companion animal genetic health will help reinforce Neogen's economic moat and allow for greater share gains going forward. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. 
Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Next, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses ETF ideas for an IRA. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Investors have until April 15th to make a contribution to an IRA if they want it to count towards 2020. Joining me today to discuss some ETF ideas for an IRA is Ben Johnson, Ben's Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So we talk a lot about how wonderful ETFs are for taxable accounts because they tend to be, in general, pretty tax efficient. So why are we talking about them as ideas for an IRA? You're absolutely right, Susan. The average investor, if, if they have a taxable account, should absolutely consider ETFs uh, as the natural home for taxable money, given that ETFs relative to most other fund formats and open-ended mutual funds in particular tend to be much more tax efficient. They distribute few, if any, regular capital gains distributions. But that said, any dividends, any coupon payments that accrue to that fund are going to be paid out to fund investors in the form of regular income. So when thinking about ETFs that might have a home in a tax-deferred wrapper, like an IRA, I think it makes sense to look at those strategies, those underlying asset classes that might have large amounts of income on a regular basis. So your first idea is um, Vanguard International High Dividend Yield Index, which is, of course, a dividend stock uh, product. Talk a little bit about why you like it. Well, this particular fund is actually the international cousin of a fund that we've liked quite a lot for quite a long time in the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF. The ticker for that one is VYM. VYMI goes overseas in search of dividend income. And what it does is it looks at the entire equity opportunity set outside the US. It takes the highest yielding half of those stocks and it folds them into its portfolio, weighting them by their market capitalization. Now, unlike other strategies that tend to have a yield orientation, which can introduce risk when you go hunting for yield, this one reduces those risks by weighting by market cap. So its largest holdings tend to be the largest, the most established firms that more likely than not are simply just you know, out of favor at the moment, which might explain their higher yields. They might be more mature firms that tend to pay greater dividends because the reinvestment opportunities are fewer and further between. So we like the elegance of this approach. It's very simple. It throws off a nice yield and it's performed remarkably well relative to both its peers in the foreign large value Morningstar category, as well as the category index. When you look at it today, it's throwing off a yield of around 3%. So again, you're looking for opportunities to shield those yields from the tax man makes sense when you're thinking about parking ETFs in an IRA. The other thing to take into account too is that because it invests in foreign stocks, there's a certain percentage of those dividends that are paid out that don't count as qualified dividend income for US investors. So if you look back to the 2020 calendar year for this fund, just three quarters of the dividends that its underlying holdings paid out counted as QDI for US investors. So that's an additional bit of, of yield that you'll be able to keep for yourself if you consider shielding that within the context 
of a tax-deferred wrapper like an IRA. And your second choice today stays a little closer to home, but is also a dividend stock strategy, uh, Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF. Again, what, what's to like there? SCHD has a lot to like, much like VYMI. The difference in this particular fund strategy is that it focuses in on stocks that have grown their dividends over a long period of time, 10 years in this instance. And it looks at that universe of stocks and then seeks out the highest yielding portion of that universe. So it's a balance between dividend growth and current income and current yields, a balance between effectively quality and value. And the outcome for investors is, has been very favorable, both because the strategy is sensible, it's sound, you invest in a diversified portfolio of companies, it's grown its dividend over time, and it sports a very low fee, which gives it a durable edge versus a lot of its peers in its category. This is another fund that's throwing off a 3% plus dividend yield at the moment. So another one that investors might want to consider putting in an IRA. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today and for a couple of great dividend stock ideas for an IRA. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Lastly, Margaret Giles from Morningstar Inc. helps us to create and stick to a budget. You got a new job and you're out on your own, but independence comes at a price. Figuring out your budget now and learning to stick with it will save you some pain down the road. To come up with a budget, you need to map out your paycheck. Uncle Sam gets paid first. You'll see that a slice of your paycheck goes to the government. Pre-tax deductions like retirement plan contributions and health insurance come out next. Now you have your net pay. It's time to think about your survival expenses. First off, housing. General rule of thumb is that you should spend no more than 30% of your pre-tax income on housing. Morningstar's Karen Wallace says that that number includes utilities. A great way to save money on housing is finding roommates. There's no shame in living with your parents or relatives if that's an option for you. Next comes food. You have to think about how much you spend each month on eating, both going out and grocery shopping. Cooking meals at home can help you stretch your money. Now that housing and food are taken care of, you have to plan for the unexpected. Try to set aside 10% of take-home pay each month in an emergency fund. Now here's your chance to figure out what other expenses are important to you. Think about things like commuting, your phone bill, entertainment. You might also consider how much you spend on health and wellness and online shopping. If it's important to you, plan for it and keep track of what you spend. Online paycheck calculators and money tracking apps make creating a budget easy. No mental math necessary. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice.
Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.